Hello, Yeroon. Hello, Dylan. I will admit today's topic feels very vulnerable to me. I'm uh, I'm feeling a little insecure about talking about this. Well, you know what? I'm used to fixing a vulnerable <laughs> things. <laughs> you would never exploit my insecurities, would you, Yeroon? I didn't prepare puns, okay? <laughs> <laughs> What what are we talking about today? I feel so much at loss here. (laughs) We are talking about security and Elm. Uh Well, the the Elm part, I think most people know, so they could have guessed that. But uh, we're talking about security. Security. That's the only word that we have uh, agreed upon. So what comes next is depending on what we want to talk about. But I mean, yeah. Just in general, like Elm feels a like a pretty secure language in the sense that I don't ever wonder about is my code secure, which is a surprisingly fresh feeling, and and maybe I should feel bad about it, but I kind of know like I don't have to worry about it. Right. Well, we should explore that question a little bit. Like where we feel a sense of security and where is it a false sense of security that we have about our elm code where do we need to be take precautions to make sure we're writing secure elm code also like secure security is a large topic so uh, just to clarify i think we're not talking about back-end security here i think we're talking about front-end security yeah i mean i think we're going to talk about security for whatever elm is used for and elm is used for front-ends Right. I, I guess with tools like Lambda, it, it extends yeah. to the backend somewhat. But uh, right. yeah, I'm going to stick to talk about the front end for now, at least. Right. Yeah. I th- uh, to me, the, the entire concept of front end security is really, I think, pretty interesting and subtle. Like, in a way, it's pretty obvious when you think about backend security. You think about Bobby tables, you think about SQL injection attacks, and DDoS attacks as well. DDoS attacks, right, and it, which is it, our which are denial, den, distributed, distributed denial of service, denial yeah, of exactly. service, right, and and uh, to me those are like pretty easy to wrap your head around, right, because you're like, well, the user makes a request, they, I need some data to know what they're searching for that I'm going to use in in a database query to perform a search or to do a user lookup or something. And it's like, well, if I don't scrub my inputs then they can just drop the database. And that, like, yes, we don't want arbitrary code executed on our database, right? Yeah, exactly. But when you think about front-end security, the web is this strange place where the user can open up dev tools in their browser and they can run JavaScript, right? Mm-hmm. So making it secure, like in the back-end, it's this like protected sacred space where you're like, I run code, and when you give me data, I need to make sure it doesn't cause code to run that I didn't intend to. That's pretty obvious. But the user can just run JavaScript code anytime they want and do anything in their front-end application. So why does front-end security matter? Right. Well, I think it's always the same thing for the front-end and the back-end. It's basically you don't want people to be able to run arbitrary code uh, where they shouldn't or rather where it would have an impact on someone else. So if you run a request and send it to the server and it drops a database table, well, that will impact a lot of people. So we don't want you to, do, to be able to do that, right? For the front end, for the front end, you can run a, any arbitrary JavaScript code in your browser, like you open your console, as you said, and then you can do whatever. You can mess up the internal state of the application and the application might crash and that's, kind of bad, but you did it upon yourself, right? If it's only for yourself, like, who really cares? Like, you actively try to mess with a machine. So it's not something that we care about. But if if you're trying to uh, execute some code on someone else's machine or on the server or somewhere else where it might affect uh, someone who didn't want you, who didn't want to be affected, then that's a security issue. Right. Yes. That's a great point. It's about certain trusted parties and when you're on a client page a a web page then the user is a trusted client and they can do whatever they want and that's fine but 
Yeah, if like if you're <laughs> if you're at uh, mysupersecurebank.com and you're logged in and you're browsing through your bank's chat forums that lets people post statements about how cool their bank is and <laughs> what fun financial things they're doing, then if they can embed HTML in there to put little emojis and bold things and you let them put whatever code you want and whoops, I let I let them embed a script tag. Now, when Yeroon logs in to mysupersecurebank.com and Dylan put in a script tag that can access Yeroon's cookies, uh, that is an untrusted party accessing, running code on your machine. So it kind of, it, it, it's, it is similar, it's a little more subtle, but it, uh, so I think, but it comes down to, as, as you're saying, like trusted parties and trusted environments. So like obviously the, a backend server is a, a trusted environment that untrusted parties need strict restrictions on how they can use that. And arbitrary code is the opposite of strict restrictions. Yeah. And when you say like, um, and, and when you say trusted parties, like trusted parties for s specific actions as well. Right, right. You as a user are allowed to create other users, maybe if you're an administrator, if you're not, then you're not allowed to. And you, you're creating some kind of content on the website uh, that will be seen by other people while you impact their their application because they now see your content or your actions. But that is allowed, right? But injecting a script, not so much. Right, totally. Yeah, so it is all about trust and privileges because, yeah, like that's a great example. You could be an admin user. And, you know, the thing is, like, it does require trust to have an admin user and that trust can be abused. Like, so, like, if the bank wanted to, they could put... <laughs> they can steal your data if they want to, like they have it and they have control. Like they could certainly inject um, a script tag onto your site, right? Like that's not even injecting. That's just serving you HTML that does a malicious thing. So the bottom line is like, it, it is a trusted party. We are trusting the bank, right? Which is why like, if you go to a, a phishing site that's going to steal your data or you're trusting to put your credit card information into a form, it's important that the page is who it says it is and is not contaminated by other untrusted parties being that. But you, it does require you trusting them. Like We think that Amazon is probably not going to go take our credit card information we submit there and like make fraudulent payments, but like they could, we're, we're assuming they won't because we're trusting them. Uh, and that seems like a pretty safe thing to put our trust in. But so, so that, that's the reason that front end security matters is because when you go to a, a website, you are trusting that, that party. And if code can be executed by other parties, you might not trust that party. So that contaminates the trust by allowing untrusted parties to to be executing code on your on your browser and you so like it, it's kind of an amazing thing to me but the the browser is this like very open transparent environment where like you can set cookies and you can uh, present data and you can like submit forms with passwords and things and somehow like in this very transparent open thing we're able to build an environment where we can sandbox things enough and come up with these conventions where trusted parties, like you can submit a password and it's pretty secure. That's kind of amazing. So the the web is like this fragile ecosystem of built on, on these tools for trust that are largely like tools that the browsers provide through these standards. But there's nothing that the browser can do if they provide these standards and these these conventions for us. But if we're not scrubbing our input properly, then there's nothing they can do because they can only trust our assumptions from, from the HTML and code we give them. But if we don't sanitize it, then we're giving them code that is going to do bad things. So front-end security, I, I think, largely comes down to sanitization is a lot, of, a lot of what it comes down to. Yeah, so when you say sanitization, uh, what you mean is sanitizing the data that is coming from the backend, the, the, HTML, the, 
the responses that you get from HTTP requests. Like, I want to render this um, HTML. Well, we need to sanitize it so that we don't inject scripts mostly, right? Yeah, well, let's talk about that. There are different sanitization contexts. And actually, like, this is one of the things that makes web security difficult uh, and front-end security difficult is, like, mm -hmm. there are so many different languages and contexts. So, in a sense, like, so frameworks can help with sanitization because, you know, if you're, if you're doing React and you use a, a prop somewhere, then it's going to sanitize it for you unless you say... Yeah, unless you say dangerously set inner HTML and then it says, oh, this is, I'm going to trust uh, the context this comes from and arbitrarily put HTML tags rather than escaping HTML characters, for example. Uh, when you render a HTML, uh, but not when using props or... Okay, I, I think I got the idea at least, yeah. In, cer in certain contexts. So you, you, can, you can only do some, so much because you're trying to allow programmatic things to be done right so if you're like but but you can at least say well if i'm setting an attribute you this is the bobby tables thing right we'll we'll link to the bobby tables in the show notes for anyone who hasn't seen that xkcd comic but you know basically if you can if you can get like a semicolon or whatever into your sql query then you might be able to start a fresh sql query and escape out of that box that you were put in where it's like this box is for find user by username the use the user gets to provide their username but you break out of that box by using these um, meaningful characters so if you escape those meaningful characters you can't break out of that box because there's no way to terminate a sql statement or terminate the html attribute so that's how like frameworks can help by escaping those things yeah Th this is actually one of those things where i let the backend do most of the security checks. For instance, if you someone have to send a SQL query to the uh, to the backend or something that will be transformed to create a SQL query, like you can put as many checks in the front end code that you want, like being making sure that you can't delete a user or that you don't craft any weird SQL queries. But if the backend allows that, then at some point that is going to happen, either because someone just did a curl request to the backend, which means like you, it doesn't go through the front end. So whatever security checks you have in the front end don't matter at all. Or they ran some JavaScript to bypass all the security checks that you did in, in the front end, and you're at the same point again. So the backend anyway has to make the necessary checks. So if you don't want someone to delete a user or delete some content, then you're going to have to do that at the back end. You might right, do it in right, the front end right. for a nicer user experience, but it's not going to be necessary from a security point of view, in my opinion. Absolutely. I, I definitely agree that, like, yeah, this is a very important point that sometimes people will write front end validations because it's like, well, you need to have front end validations because you need a good user experience. Yep. So I'll check for these things. But then I already validated this on the front end, so I don't need to validate it on the back end again. That would be like duplicating things. But of course, as you say, <laughs> it is anything that's coming from the client cannot be trusted by the back end. So that's like another dimension of this is there's like the, the front end to back end security, which essentially it, you need to treat any client as untrusted. And again, that's to me, that's this sort of magical thing that we've been able to create something where you can create trust in this environment where you don't really know, like the client could be anyone. And somehow we can create trust within, within that context. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Like the backend even, it can't really trust much of its code, except when you have opaque types, right? If the backend has <laughs> opaque types, then you can yes. absolutely trust that code. <laughs> but when it comes from the front end, when well, that's uh, going through HTTP, that's going through GraphQL or some kind of some other kind of protocol, and therefore it's raw data that has no inherent security or validation yes. on it, right? Right, exactly. So you need to check it again, at yeah. which point you turn it into an opaque type. Blah 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 blah. You know, <laughs> you know the drill. Absolutely, yes, yeah, and uh, you know. So then there's then there's just like the 
stuff that happens purely on the front end. And again, I, I think like if mysupersecurebank.com allows my post on their message board, which it's a bad idea, they shouldn't have built that feature, but they did. And they let me post arbitrary HTML in there and they don't scrub the inputs and they let me put script tags and they let me modify the DOM of the page, right? Now they're allowing me to essentially open up the dev tools in another user's browser that's looking at their bank in a logged in session or, or maybe a logged out session. And I go and take advantage of that by essentially I can now execute arbitrary code on another user's page through posting on that message board. I add a script tag that says, okay, hide all of the stuff on the original page and then put in my HTML that is going to, when they log in, it's going to do on submit, post it to my phishing site. And now I've stolen their credentials when they try to log in. So we're, we're putting a lot of trust in like, Typing in a password in an input field in a in a web page and then hitting enter is kind of a a move of extreme trust. And so we we've been sort of we haven't said the term, but we've kind of been talking about cross-site scripting attacks or XSS attacks. And so that's why it's so important because we are trusting that like we're putting a lot of trust in just like the HTML elements that are presented on that page. And if we abuse that, like if we allow an, a malicious user to take control of another user's like web page, like the HTML they see on their page and script tags they see on their page, then all of that trust is now tainted and we can do malicious things because they're trusting us as if we were that authoritative trusted source. So that's why front-end security is really important. We, do, we don't necessarily think about it a lot, but it's an important thing to be aware of. Absolutely. Because, yeah, the the results can be quite disastrous, right? So in my opinion, or at, le at least in my understanding, what it all comes down to is that you shouldn't trust any arbitrary data from the backend either. The backend should try to avoid saving uh, arbitrary HTML or arbitrary JavaScript code because it, it will then be likely to send it to, to the front end. But the front end should also try to avoid rendering and executing that code. And that's where multiple frameworks and languages have different strategies for this, right? React has one that you mentioned where we sanitize things. Most JavaScript um, frameworks do this or will tell you, oh, you should always sanitize, never forget to sanitize. Have you sanitized yet? Have you sanitized it once, twice, three times, the charm? <laughs> and Elm has a different strategy for this, right? Where you are not allowed to, to do this. You're not allowed to render arbitrary HTML or arbitrary or run arbitrary JavaScript code unless you, through some escape hatches, allow it to. And let's dive into a few strategies for attackers and how yes. they inject things, right? Or how do they do bad things? Because they're, that will also open up to how they can do things. So... In the beginning, there was JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might be going forward a little bit like when browsers were like five years old, but let, let's say in the beginning. ECMAScript, perhaps? <laughs> Not yet, I think. I think Didn't it, it start as ECMAScript? Hmm. We're going to need to look this up. Yeah. I, I think ECMAScript was later, and that, that was something like they couldn't call it JavaScript because Oracle had. Right. Patent or something. I'm not sure either, but yeah. So there, there was JavaScript and browsers, they uh, added su support for JavaScript, all of them. And JavaScript is super useful. We've talked about it before. It has a few quirks. We've talked about those before. Uh, but basically in JavaScript, if you want to make a HTTP request, it is pretty easy. Well, somewhat easy. You do new XML HTTP requests, pass in some arguments and Basically, in one line of code, uh, you, you can run arbitrary JavaScript code or run um, send arbitrary HTTP requests. And that doesn't have any checks on it. It does not have any sandboxing around it. You just write that code, execute it, and boom, the HTTP request is going. And that can happen in any piece of code. Like if you write that in a uh, line of JavaScript code, 
it runs. If you run that in a getter method, it runs. If you run that in a promise, it runs wherever. And that is quite dangerous as well, because that means that if that you can potentially run this in like prototypes or mm-hmm. methods that have so been over- overridden by prototypes. But maybe I'm going too far are ahead. You, are you telling me that you can just write code and it just executes side effects? Yes. What? Yes. It's bad. That's so did strange. I, did I tell you it's bad? <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> so yeah, th- there, there's no control over those effects, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why right. we call them side effects, even though in a way they are done on purpose. They're not side effects, they're purposeful effects, but they're not right. managed effects uh, like the way that we like to use them in Elm. Exactly, right. It could Because we are performing effects, but it's constrained where they can occur and what can trigger them. Yeah, exactly. And so because you can do pretty much any kind of code, any kind of effect when running JavaScript code, the strategy that Elm has taken to prevent security issues is to prevent JavaScript. Because that is surprisingly much easier (laughs) to control everything. Yeah. And for that, Elm has has chosen a few strategies. So how do you run, uh, how do you prevent JavaScript from running? Well, first of all, you don't have a um, direct interop. You don't have FFI. You can't just run arbitrary um, JavaScript functions inside Elm code. So that has been a pain for a lot of people, especially when going to from 018 to 019. But that does mean that you don't have any security issues. And that is quite cool. So just to clarify, to put on our malicious hacker hat, again for a second, what is the malicious hacker trying to do in this case? Like how are they, what's their attack vector they're trying to exploit? Are we talking an NPM package that I, NPM install is even and yes. it makes an HTTP request? Yeah, so you, you've got multiple ways of doing things. Uh, so as we said before with XSS, cross-site scripting, uh, where if you have the backend returning some arbitrary uh, JavaScript code that someone else, someone malicious, um, has entered, then executed that would trigger um, HTTP requests, which can now send your cookies and other important information to the malicious at- uh, attacker. 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 Yes. Attacker. <laughs> An attacker. <laughs> but yeah, um, you also have NPM, as you said, where if you have an, a JavaScript application and you have installed a malicious package, well, if you ex- execute that code, then it can tr- it can run arbitrary JavaScript code, right? So it can do that somewhat explicitly, like, oh, you call that function from that library and then it does the, some HTTP request, or it can do it in weird ways, like it can change the prototype of um, core functions from JavaScript. So if you do, if you try to access window dot, I don't know, window dot array dot from whatever, then now suddenly it starts making HTTP requests in a very unexpected way, and that is why we, you get a, a lot of these security issues about prototype pollution is because now people can do do weird things about the prototype, meaning anything that looks even normal can do anything uh, weird. Right, right. And and this is not theoretical. Like there have definitely been like supply chain attacks where a package that's used by millions of packages upstream, it's a dependency in the node modules of this one dependency, either um, the the author of that package or maintainer of that package decides to put something malicious in or somebody convinces the maintainer of a, an NPM package to give them the keys because they're stepping down as maintainer, they're looking for new maintainers, and they, uh, or, or they uh, maliciously take control of an NPM account or whatever. The, these things have happened many times, increasingly so. Yeah. And in, in some cases, you've got a little bit of both, like where a package doesn't do any, anything malicious, but it somehow has the capability of changing the prototype something because it can set an arbitrary value 
on an arbitrary position. Like Lodash, for instance, I, th I think had an issue like that where I don't know the details, but I imagine like uh, the underscore dash set function, you can change the prototype of something. So now if a package uses Lodash and uses a dot set method and the path at which you set something is supplied by the user, well, now the user can set an arbitrary value at a prototype. And that could be uh, some JavaScript code running HTTP requests. And that's where it gets like, uh, well, it, it becomes really hard to audit things. And but some people do hard work. But yeah, it, it looks like, uh, really, is, is, does it really matter? Well, in some cases, it, it doesn't. In some cases, it, it does. Right. So, so most of these types of problems don't, don't exist in Elm. Not, not all of them, but most of them. Yeah, they, 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 they don't on their own, right? Mm -hmm. Right, because you can always do interop. You can do JavaScript interop from Elm using user input. You can install npm to packages in an Elm app. Yeah, exactly. And if they do something weird, well, then that impacts your Elm code as well. But it's mostly because you did you installed that other package, which has this vulnerability. So it's not because Elm is vulnerable um, in this aspect. So, so yeah, the the ways that Elm prevents you from doing all these weird things that lead to problematic results is it doesn't have FFI, and you also can't just render plain HTML like um, you can with React, where you have the dangerously set inner HTML set inner HTML prop. Right, and as a workaround, sometimes Elm users will use something like an HTML parser package. They'll take user input, they'll parse it, and then they'll render that. And then they get something of the HTML type in Elm that they can render on their page. At least, though, in that case, there are a few attack vectors that are closed off. For example, you cannot include script tags there. Uh, you cannot include on-click handlers or these types of things and put arbitrary JavaScript as a string as those attributes. So some of these attack vectors for... Well, essentially, you you actually just can't put JavaScript in there. So you can put HTML, and you you actually can do malicious things with only HTML tags if you're accepting untrusted HTML, but you can't execute JavaScript from that. So Elm shuts off that attack vector. Yeah, so, so to continue on the, the ways around that that you mentioned, so yeah, you can parse the HTML and you can re-render it using plain Elm functions. Uh, or you can use ports or web components right, to right. Yep. route that to JavaScript and to and let it handle um, render the whole thing potentially and hopefully with some sanitization. So you, you mentioned um, that you couldn't render script tags. Why not? Uh, well, I mean, partially, I think it's just the the Elm language's philosophy of pure functions, and it introduces a, a break in that mental model, a leak in that model, if you have script tags, because now you say, well, this is a pure function, but it renders a script tag that makes an HTTP request. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're back at, at square one. Right. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, I think security is one motivation, but perhaps it's almost a side effect, if you will, <laughs> of mm. that. <laughs> I would call it a controlled effect of not <laughs> wanting side effects. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the reason why, the technical reason why we can't have these script tags is because Elm's virtual DOM, which is what the Elm slash HTML package and Elm UI and Elm CSS all use. And the Elm virtual DOM is the one responsible for creating the, the DOM nodes. And basically, whenever you call one of the primitive functions, you pass in the tag name. So that can be a div, that can be an A tag. And if you try to pass in a script tag, then Elm will actually look at that and see that looks very much like a script tag. Let me replace that by a P tag, so a paragraph. And therefore, you now have a P tag with some JavaScript code inside of it. But when it's rendered to the browser, the browser will not execute it because it's not a script tag. That's embarrassing. You've got your script tag <laughs> rendered in the DOM in a P tag? Yeah, like you're, 
you attacker are making a fool of you, of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> look look at the the external HTTP request that you're trying to show to your users, to your fellow users, <laughs> right? Kind of embarrassing, yeah. And yeah, so Elm does quite a lot of these um, similar tricks where it tries to prevent you from declaring and executing JavaScript code through different ways that the browser would understand it. So script tags are one. On click, yeah. On click or event handlers in general, it, pre it prevents those. And basically the way that it does that is not uh, through sanitizing the the JavaScript or the, the inputs. It's by doing something a little bit um, easier performance-wise by disabling the, the tag, like replacing the script tag by p tag, for instance. So the only check is looking at the tag name or checking the attribute name so or the property name. So for instance, if you have an event handler, like whenever you, uh, you click on something, you could have something that says console log or make some HTTP request. Well, the, 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 the Elm Virtual DOM will look at the name of the attributes, and if it looks like something like unclick, then it will change that to data-unclick. And that way, that is just data, and the browser doesn't try to execute it. It doesn't look like an event handler for it uh, in, in its point of view. Um, so yes, these kind of small tricks, small checks that uh, the Elm Virtual DOM does, and that makes it really hard to, to inject JavaScript. I know there are a few ways we can still do it, and um, uh, I know that um, some issues have been uh, opened recently, but I, I think that those will be solved uh, through some changes to Elm Virtual DOM. Yeah, you had some that were uh, merged in recently as well, right, in, in the last year? year. So. Yeah, yeah. Some, someone sometime this year. Oh, actually, when is this episode released? So, sometime in 2022, I had... <laughs> True. Yeah, so, so I made a blog post about that uh, that explained kind of what I'm talking about now and uh, yes, the different vulnerabilities that were found and fixed. Uh, yeah. So I, th I think uh, just, just to clarify this point, injecting JavaScript is most of, most of those vectors are closed off in Elm, which is kind of un a unique thing in Elm, which is really great. It simplifies how you reason about uh, these injection vulnerabilities. One thing that I want to point out is that so the the web does give you um, again like these sort of trusted handshakes that somehow fit together even though there are all these points where we're giving a lot of trust to like yeah you can enter your password and send it to this place and it'll probably work out fine but we're putting a lot of trust right another place that we put our trust is like if you for example um, if you inject an image tag it will perform a get request. So that's a that's actually a way to inject a get request. It's it's a bit subtle, but you put that in the page and the browser injects it. Uh, the browser performs a get request. Yeah, which is uh, what some people call a pixel tracker, I think. Uh, well, I would say that's a special case of it. A pixel tracker is one way of abusing that. So one of the reasons why, uh, so it performs a get request, not a post request. So one of the reasons why the HTTP method matters, this is actually relevant on the backend side, but it, there's an interplay between backend and frontend here. So let's say you have a logout endpoint that accepts a GET request. Now you post an image to google.com slash logout, at like, like image source equals google.com slash logout. You in, somehow manage to inject that image source on a page, which there are many ways to successfully do that and now you've logged out the user that's inconvenient maybe you even have effectively locked them out of that account where they can't enter their account that's not good right so that's something that you have you have to understand these handshakes and protocols and how these different like tools and conventions are giving trust and authority by using them and so because you're essentially saying like i i will allow like within my web page, if you make a GET request, I will perform that GET request and send along my cookies. Now, usually the way it's set up, it's only going to send those cookies to the same domain. So usually that's not going to be an issue because you trust sending those cookies to that same domain. But you need to be aware that you, you're by, by using these web standards, you are 
putting trust by doing certain things. So that's why like you need to be sure to not perform side effects when a get request is done, more or less, right? You can, okay, I can give this data. I, you can do analytics. Blah, blah, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, exactly. There's a bit of a gray area, but you need to be careful about that. You need to be aware of what you're essentially authorizing by choosing to accept the get method by performing some action. So we've talked about people injecting things through NPM packages, for instance. We haven't talked about doing it through Elm packages. But you can probably do similar things, right? So if you want to make an HTTP request from an Elm package, there are multiple ways to do it. But the, the main one is to do it through the Elm slash HTTP um, package and to, to call the HTTP um, functions and therefore return either a task or a command, right? So already the, the nice thing about, about this in Elm is that you have a type that tells you, hey, this is doing something, this is an effect. And these are pretty much the only things that you have to look at. Like if you want to order things uh, carefully, like make sure that no one is sending weird requests uh, over the wire, like look at whatever is returning a task or a command or whatever that contains one of these. And you only you can only use them in the context of an update function, right? Like if you, if these are used in a view function, doesn't matter. Like they, they won't get executed. So that's that's something like uh, that differs from something like React, where even if you call this function, it's not going to get executed. But in the context of React, like yeah, you you might want to worry about this because calling this function will trigger the HTTP request. And the other um, worry that you can create HTTP requests is, like you said, with um, HTML. So, and this is something that is actually possible in Elm, but it doesn't happen in practice. And I'll talk about that, why. So someone can create um, some div or uh, HTML elements and publish that as part of a Elm package. And if that one contains an image, with a source that leads to a malicious attacker's uh, URL uh, endpoint, then automatically we will be sending data, cookies potentially, to the malicious, malicious attacker. Mm -hmm. Although cookies are... Yeah, no, no, not I cookies, think over right? HTTP, I think over HTTPS, cookies will never be sent cross-origin. Cross Ah, uh, maybe. Yeah. Or, or, or you know what? No, I think when you when you set HTTP only cookies, you can set your policy. So the default HTTP only cookie policy is lax, which sounds like it would be relaxed, but mm -hmm. it's yeah. actually fairly strict. So you can do like lax strict, and I think the third option is none. But only the none option, which is not the default, will allow cookies to be sent in cross-origin HTTP requests. So, so generally, you're not going to have cookies being sent to other domains. Yeah, I, I have heard of people using this technique to notice when the policy was not set the right way. So yeah. you, you, there's a pixel totally. tracker or something that just sends requests to the malicious attacker's servers. And the only, the only thing that it actually tells the, the attacker is that, hey, this website here, is vulnerable. It's Give not cookies. It's not correctly protected. If or, there's one thing hackers love, it's yummy cookies. Yeah. So yeah, this you, you can do in Elm. So if you really want to do an audit, you need to check for tasks, commands, and HTML. Although for tasks and command, you only have to care about whether if the package depends on Elm slash HTTP. Otherwise, doesn't matter. Like there's nothing that I think people can do without that. Yeah. Or anything that that influences the the strings in the URL in your HTTP request, or what. so you have to look at in general the flow to these insecure sort of endpoints. Like, what are the points in your application where you can do mal potentially malicious things? HTTP requests, image tags, things like that. How are how is data flowing to them? So if you perform an HTTP request and it's a hard coded URL. And you can, you know, add a query parameter from the user. That's very different than if you're taking the entire URL from the user input. That can potentially be more malicious. So you have to consider like the flow of trusted and untrusted 
inputs and trusted and untrusted code to these potential attack vectors. Absolutely, yeah. In, in practice, I found that to be quite rare, but yeah, absolutely. And in Elm, there are fewer of these attack vectors and there's like a cleaner, clearer flow to them. So it's just there, there's less attack surface area and an easier way to analyze how untrusted things might, may go to them. Yeah, you, you can't just say, well, replace the HTTP or XML HTTP requests implementation by this, and now the URL will always be this. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. And Richard Feldman gave a talk, it, it was at El, Oslo Elm Days, and uh, I'll, I'll link to the talk, I've mentioned it before, but he, he made a really nice point there. He also talked about NPM package vulnerabilities and, and all that stuff. But he was talking about um, in Elm, you know, why, why would you even want to install, like, like Richard's like, I trust Luke Westby, but why would I use the Elm HTTP builder package? Why would I use any third-party code to construct an HTTP request when if you look at the API, just like copy-paste the parts of it that you want, look at the code, make sure it looks good, and then... Not only is it like secure stuff that you don't have to trust and you don't have to think about if I'm updating the version, did another maintainer take over and push commits in there or whatever, but now you can say, well, um, this is the hard-coded URL for our API. So the HTTP Builder API, you can custom tailor it for your needs and make it safer where you're not even thinking about what URL does it go to because it only goes to one URL or it goes to, here's a custom type of the three different possible URLs it can go to and you choose one. So it's a tool for reasoning and constraining these things so you can analyze the flow even more easily and not have to depend on third-party code. Because like so much of this third-party code, just vendor it or bring it into your own code base, build it yourself. And yeah, and b because of this, like we tend to not have many packages, right? We don't tend to have many dependencies in, in our applications. And that makes it much easier to audit our code if we really want to, right? Because there's, I don't know, maybe a, a few dozen dependencies for for very large applications, and that's it. And you only have to look at the ones that depend on Elm HTML, Elm Virtual DOM, and Elm HTTP. And that reduces them by, maybe you only have two or three left at most, I don't know. And auditing, I think, is where this stuff you were talking about before really comes into play, the the prototype pollution and and things like that where you can set global variables and have effects happen in unexpected places that get triggered in strange places like you just don't have to think about those things with elm so auditing code is so much more straightforward yeah just like it's also very simple code right it's elm there's no mutations there's no global effects blah 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 but also because we have so few dependencies right that's very different from the the npm ecosystem where people use thousands of uh, npm dependencies often without knowing it because there are so uh, so many indirect dependencies and we have and the, there's this one thing where we have um where we're lucky that the elm community is qu quite small and that is security because if there're like 10 million javascript developers and like uh, I don't know how many we are. I, I don't want to make it too small nor too, <laughs> too high. Uh, I yeah. don't know. How, how less does thousands? Less than um, 10 million. Yeah, <laughs> less than 10 million developers. Um, developers. Well, then it's not going to be very interesting for attackers to create these malicious packages. Like maybe one of them or two of them will do it. But also the, the things that they're going to be able to do with it is going to be uh, very restricted compared to what you do in JavaScript. And also to to make it possible is much harder because you are much more constrained. Oh, you want to make an HTTP request? Then you have to go through um, an update function to return something that, with a task or a command. And that's going to be a lot more obvious. Or you need to do something like a pixel tracker. And then you're kind of limited in the kind of information that you can send to the, to the malicious attacker's servers. And also, you don't have access to cookies in Elm. In practice, right? So there's almost no information that you can send. You can't do document.cookies and reach into the cookie jar to get, yeah. And we should mention uh, those are, so the document.cookies, 
allows you to get cookies that are visible to JavaScript. Uh, one practice that I really like is using HTTP-only cookies. So they're not visible through document.cookies. They're only visible, the server receives them as a request header when you make an HTTP request to the same origin, to, to the URL you're on. Mm -hmm. And it will not send any of the other cookies to any other places? Right. It does, yes. If, you, if you're using the default permission type, uh, you know, security policy for HTTP only cookie uh, headers, cookies, then it will not send them to other domains. Um, so that's a very secure way to do it. It does. Well, we'll, we'll talk about this in the future, but um, you sort of need to be able to have a server side story where you're deciding what data to send, right? So that could be a Rails application where you're maybe grabbing, like deciding that the user is logged in in a Rails application that can read the cookies in the incoming request and then say, okay, this is, the user is logged in. Here's the user-specific data that I'll send that can be passed in as flags to the Elm application that's rendered. Elm Pages v3, you can do similar things because you, you can, in pure Elm, look at the incoming server request cookies and do a logged in user session. So, but those types of approaches where you have a server involved in the process rather than a client only application that doesn't have a, an opportunity to look at uh, HTTP cookies, you can do some of these practices that are just easier to reason about that you're doing in a secure way. There's less to think about protecting the cookies from an attacker. So we've talked a lot about making HTTP calls, uh, but I would generally say that we don't want anything unexpected or malicious to happen in in the context of security, right? And something that unexpected that can happen is that your code crashes. Like you start depending on a package and now everything crashes because of it. And now your whole application is made um, unusable. So a malicious attacker could want to do that if they want to sabotage your application. And, but that is much harder to do because it's Elm, right? Like there's not many th things that you can do um, that will cause runtime errors. You, you, can, you still can do things like infinite uh, loops or infinite recursions, but it, it's going to be very restrictive in what you can do. Yes, it's very restrictive. I think one, one interesting exercise is to think about where does Elm delegate directly to JavaScript and and where does it protect that or or not? So for example, you can create a regex in Elm that creates a JavaScript regex under the hood. JavaScript regexes have DDoS vulnerabilities, meaning you can create a regex that's, that's basically going to crash the page. Do you mean they will crash it or do you mean that it will take so much time that it will make the site unusable? Exactly, exactly. Okay. It'll, it'll grind it to a halt to the point where it stops responding. But that's only a problem for the server, right? See that it's yeah. a gray area. And mm -hmm. so so again, you, you really I think you really have to like consider to me this is the mindset. It's like thinking about the flow of untrusted inputs to potential attack vectors and untrusted code to potential attack vectors. So if you you know if you have a package that allows you to do to build regexes, you could potentially say, like, does an attacker really stand to gain from that? Maybe it's not that big of a risk, but maybe it's something you, you'd be aware of, depending on how important that would be. If you're, um, you know, if they can cra crash your cat GIF site, then <laughs> maybe you're like, well, you know, there's not that much in it for them. But if they can crash your site for submitting taxes and they do that on tax day, then maybe that's more important for you to be careful about. But yeah, like what, what is the flow of untrusted input and untrusted code to attack vectors? And what would happen if that untrusted data or untrusted code did something with that attack vector? So you have to think about that with regexes because if strings are... Now, if, um, if you have user input and you use that directly to do a regex, and now that means the user can DDoS themselves and crash the page. You're like, okay, well... If the user is being malicious to themselves and it causes them to crash their own page, then maybe I'm fine with that. Maybe they deserved it, you know? 
<laughs> but if the input is coming from another user, so another user can cause somebody's page to crash, maybe that's not good. So yeah, you really have to think about the flow. It's really like just being aware of these things and thinking them through. There's no silver bullet for these things. Ah, uh, there is. Like, y y yeah, you take that input and then you you validate it by making it a big type, like uh, regex that won't crash the user application. Yeah, sure, sure. And then you can execute that if you have successfully created that kind of regex. And otherwise you don't execute it, you return an event, uh, a error to the user. Right, yeah. So opaque types, man. <laughs> I agree. You know what they always say, right? Always bet on opaque types. <laughs> the, yeah, the, as the saying goes, there are no silver bullets except opaque types, as we know. Elm Radio t-shirt coming soon. It, can't, it could be. It could be. It could be. <laughs> hey, hey, listener, do you want it? Let us know. <laughs> so are these the main attack vectors that Elm users should be aware of? In my opinion, yeah. Or at least in my, from my viewpoint, yeah. There's nothing more than I can think of. Uh, you can have someone run ex an exceedingly number of computations through infinite recursions uh, or through regexes, if you want. And that's one category of issues that you can uh, that you might want to look at. The other ones are uh, rendering. Um, HTML that will trigger HTTP requests, HTTP requests, and the other ones are making HTTP calls through through dependencies that will send something to the attacker, and that's pretty much it in my opinion. So, like, even the concept of sanitizing doesn't really apply much in practice. Yeah, most of the time. I mean, I I think with sanitization, like, I I think just to just to kind of put put a, a simple process to that i think it's like what are the special characters that can break out of the box that you're expecting the user input to be constrained to right so if it's html it's like closing you know closing caret for a tag and clo closing quotes and th th these sorts of characters can escape things so there are a handful of special characters that will break out of the intended context there there are a finite number of them there's a there is a way to escape them to remove their special behavior or meaning so that you know that the user will be kept in that box that's what sanitization is the thing is you you do have to think about what is the box i'm trying to keep them in so if like something belongs as a url query parameter and you're trying to keep them in that box now in that context an ampersand will break them out of that box and allow them to add more URL query parameters. Is that a security issue? It depends on your context. Like if that query parameter can be an attack vector, the way that your API works and you're trusting input that comes from a place that could allow a malicious user to exploit that, then it is. So you need to know like what box are you expect anytime you're taking untrusted input and you're like, well, this this is only going to affect, this data can only do this one thing. You have to make sure it doesn't go outside of that one thing you think it's going to do. Or if it does, it's not going to cause a huge exploit. So Yeah. Or, or also get, just give a very bad user experience, right? Because right, that can right. also, it's not an attack factor, but yes, it's also something like that we should care about. Right. So, so I about. think the thing with the web is that there are a lot of different sort of encoding contexts. Like there's a um, nice article that I'll link to that talks about like a lot of these, what they call output encoding contexts. So they like, they say like HTML entities is one output encoding context, HTML attributes, URLs, um, and in particular HTML attributes that accept JavaScript, which isn't an attack vector in Elm. But um, but but again, even within like the context of a URL, maybe you're trying to constrain where they put that thing to be a query parameter. So you just have to, I, I think you just have to think that through. That to me, that's the thought process. Anytime you're taking untrusted input, you need to do that thought process. Well, so are there any resources we should uh, point point our listeners to? I wrote a blog post about fixing these security issues in uh, Elm Virtual DOM. We could point out, 
that. If you're interested, look at the implementation of Elm Virtual DOM. It's quite short uh, and it can be quite interesting. Otherwise, you should probably learn about cross-site scripting issues, so XSS, what they are and how they matter. But in, yeah, they tend not to matter too much in Elm, in, in my opinion, my experience, which is so freeing. Like, I don't yeah. have to care about it so much. Yeah, uh, if you want to explore anything about security, I'm sure there's a lot of things to cover, but not that I'm too knowledgeable about. Do you have any other ones? So the one I want to mention is there... Um, so first of all, there's like a little cheat sheet, a little article from OWASP about XSS attacks. So I'll drop a link to that. That's a nice little resource. But um, uh, for us, yeah. <laughs> in the JS community... Mention did a Stanford course, CS53, on web security. And it is online, available for free on YouTube. It's very long, but uh, you can go and look at the specific lectures you might be interested but interested in. It's very well done. Uh, it's a very good summary. There are some modules on cross-site scripting and cross-site scripting defenses. Uh, so I'll drop a link to, to all of that. You can even just like peruse the slides and they're short and concise and explain these potential attack vectors very nicely. So um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the web is sort of a magical thing that has all of these conventions that have a lot of meaning. Like when do cookies get sent places? And most of the time we sort of like maybe the defaults kind of work out pretty well or certain back-end frameworks or front-end frameworks make assumptions about these things so we don't have to think about them as much because they're built in and taken care of, of for us. But I think it's good to be aware of some of these things just so you can bring your attention to any places that you really need to be careful about. Yeah. Uh, talking about Feroz again. Uh, so he made a company called Socket, socket.dev and he has a very nice uh, blog post which he he has already also made uh, talks about called what's really going on inside your node modules folder. And it's um, a very scary article about all the things that NPM can screw you over. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really nice because reading through that, I'm like, all these things don't apply to Elm. Like b mostly because Elm uh, doesn't have any post install scripts when you run a package. Like, Adding a package is not an effectful thing in practice, or it's, it's not a, anything that can be an exact vector, as far as I know. So th that one is really nice as well. We, we have not talked about this as an attack vector, but it absolutely is. Yeah. And uh, I think if, if someone wants to make um, a, an attack vector for NPM, currently this is the way that they tend to do things. Mostly, but it, it will mostly target developers rather than users, but maybe a little bit of both, depending on what they do. And basically, like send your data to the attacker or start mines bitcoins on your machine. Yeah, mine bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> One of them was kind of stupid. Like they they started uh, mining bitcoin, but they did just all the way. Like they took all of your uh, CPUs to mine bitcoin. And therefore, people could notice that their fans were going. <laughs> They're like, "Wow, this is a this is a totally normal npm install step." Yeah, it's taking many hours with hundred percent CPU. Oh no, the, the npm install <laughs> finished, <laughs> but then like, yeah, the, the, the CPU oh, was one hundred percent all the time. Like, and right. they're like, "Well, something must be going on." Oh, I have a something that originated from a script that is doing something. And people investigated and they're like, okay, well, it's, it's mining I Bitcoin. See. But so if, they if could they, have gotten away with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If they were a bit more sneaky, like just using 10% of their CPU, like maybe they wouldn't notice it for a few months. Yeah. Maybe. Like, Interesting. Uh, so, th yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not generally not worrying too much about security, as you might have noticed. Right. Um, right. Because I fixed the, all the issues. <laughs> <laughs> No, it is, it is beautiful to have this like mental model that just, I mean, for me, this is how I feel about so many things in Elm. Like it reduces the surface area. So it's so much easier for me to just focus on solving the problem at hand instead of like all of the junk around it that I don't care about. 
yeah J just the fact of not never worry about sanitization uh but i would not underestimate uh attackers like yeah if, if anything they're part of the most resourceful kind of people mm -hmm. that you can <laughs> encounter right well all it takes is one one exploit to be a yep. problem right so they can throw throw it, the kitchen sink at it yeah but yeah security is one of those features that elm has and that i think we don't talk about enough like yeah elm makes small bundles it makes it is very fast it makes code very maintainable but it also has very good security uh features and that is very much not the case with other javascript frameworks and we we tend not to mention that one too much and maybe it's because we don't care about it, like in the sense that we don't think about security, and therefore we don't use it as a, we don't mention it as a as a feature of Elm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely one of the things that makes Elm delightful. Absolutely. All right. Well, follow us on Twitter. Give us a review in Apple Podcasts. Let us know if you want that uh, opaque types T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, and you're in. Until next time. Until next time. 